open up your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you don't have sermon notes, uh, raise your hand, someone will get them to you. Uh, It's a great way to stay engaged for those of you who have wandering minds, is to jot down notes and kind of try and keep yourself uh, in step with what's happening here this morning. I want to welcome you. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at this church. And special thanks to our students. It's fun to have the scriptures read uh, and kind of come alive. So thanks for the work on that this morning. You guys appreciate it. At the age of 17, a couple of months before my 18th birthday, I had the single most transformative thing happen to me that's ever happened in my now 51 years of living. (laughs) It came, it came in a real subtle moment just like this. I was at a church service. I've been to a lot of church services. Frankly, I went into the church service not expecting much. Truth be told, most church services kind of bored me. I was sitting in a church service. God tugged on my heart, opened my eyes, caused me to walk down an aisle at my home church three miles from here. On that particular church service, I... Gave my life to the Lord in a brand new, fresh way. I prayed to receive Christ as a child. But at age 17, God like opened my eyes and said, you're mine. And on that day, I'm not sure what specifically prompted it other than my parents and youth pastors and people modeling it for me. But I committed to read the Bible every single day for one year. I haven't stopped. That one decision where God began to speak to me personally, where I began to feed firsthand from the written word of God has utterly altered every single aspect of my life up until this morning. We're in a passage that is so profound. We talk about Paul's greatest hits. Paul wrote much of the New Testament through inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what we're getting to today is a passage worth really chewing on, reading over and over, potentially memorizing. If you would follow along with me, 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14. It says this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Let me say a few opening comments. The intro is going to be kind of long. Stay with me, and then I'm going to get to a very simple outline of what we just read. What the Bible is, what the Bible is for, and what the Bible does. Okay? That's kind of where we're going this morning. Let me just direct your attention to Paul who's writing to younger Timothy. He says, but as for you, what we've seen in this letter so far is sort of this 
contrast going on. Paul is ping-ponging between false teachers, between those who are doing things the wrong way and then saying, but as for you, and here's another one of those. In, in verse 13, evil people will go from bad to worse. But Timothy, as for you, you're not a deceiver. You're not an imposter. Next week, we'll get to this in chapter 4, verse 5. People will gather teachers to suit their own ideas. But not you, Timothy. You preach the word. So you hear Paul kind of ping-ponging back and forth and this contrast. And what it's saying is this. Paul is saying to Timothy, a young preacher, preacher of God, be nothing like the evil imposters. Be nothing like the deceivers who are themselves being deceived and being used by Satan to deceive others. Don't sound like them. Don't look like them. Don't live like them. There will be a giant contrast going on. He says, continue in what you have learned, verse 14. Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Much of this letter and much of 1 Timothy is talking about sound doctrine. And sound doctrine is contrasted to false doctrine. This is sound doctrine. It's just what aligns with the truth. So he's saying, follow me in the sound doctrine that you have heard and seen in my life. Follow me up the stairway of discipleship. Remember, uh, Timothy, you were with me. So keep following my life, my aim in life, my, my patience, my love, my teachings, my persecutions. Follow your godly family. I want to I give a little snippet on family ministry here at Neighborhood Bible Church. If you're new or if you've been serving in this for a long time, um, this is just a reminder and refresher, or it's kind of giving you a sneak peek into the philosophy of ministry of how we do things um, here at this particular church. At Neighborhood Bible Church, we steer kids toward the scripture from a very early age. And our hope is this, that they don't um, kind of grow up in our Sunday school program and then suddenly hit um, big church. We used to call this big church. Big church is where the adults went. Big church is where I went to get bored at church until God opened my eyes and got a hold of my heart. All of a sudden, at big church, we open the Bible and we look to the Bible. Well, we say, why not just start that process from a very young age, but make it age appropriate? So give it in tiny bite-sized chunks, but keep feeding kids the word of God from the very beginning. We show what is valuable by how much time and effort we put into something, right? Right? This is true across the board. It's not a churchy principle. It's just reality. So in our Sunday school program, when we dismiss kids off to class, we are trying already to nurture their appetite for the honey of God's word. Just little snippets of it. When you come in here on Sunday mornings at Neighborhood Bible Church, we're trying to say really plainly what you're going to get in here. You're going to get a lot of time in the Bible. We want to lead and give effort and time into feeding you God's word. I say this regularly to our congregation. If I or someone else gets up here, reads a quick verse, and never refers back to it, but goes on talking, talking, talking about whatever I want to talk about, you ought to call me on it. You ought to come and say, I thought we were Neighborhood Bible Church, not uh, Neighborhood Dave's Opinion Church. Right? Neighborhood Headlines Church. Neighborhood Republican or Democrat or Independent or whatever church. 
nonsense. We're going to open our Bibles. We're going to look for it. I loved it. I actually just was reading this scripture, and I know this passage pretty well. I was looking up. You know what I saw? A bunch of the top of your heads. I like that. I think it's really important that you make sure I'm not making this stuff up. Notice the what and who of Timothy's faith for a second. Specifically, notice that faith comes from others, but is not in others. This is really important to get, and this ties into how we do ministry here. Faith comes from other people, but it's not in other people. Who did Timothy learn the faith from? Grandma Lois and Mama Eunice, right? How do I know that? Because I read the whole of Scripture. I already read the whole letter. We already went through this weeks and weeks ago. We don't just read the famous parts of the Bible. If you read just the famous parts of the Bible, by the way, you end up with a really shallow faith or a cult. That's where that goes. So I learned in chapter 1 that Timothy got his faith from a faithful grandmother who passed it on to her daughter. And that daughter faithfully passed it on to her son. Grandmas and moms, listen up. You're vastly important. What about grandpas and dads? We'll get to that in a second. Here's a preview. You're really important too, okay? Hang, hang with me. Those who pass, pass on the faith of the God of the Bible point beyond themselves. Those who pass on the faith in a biblical way point outside of themselves, beyond themselves. They don't point to themselves. Oh, this is so important. In my upbringing, just so you know, can God work through plan B? Absolutely. Is divorce ever God's plan A? No. Are there a lot of divorced people and what we call what we term broken homes in this room? Absolutely. If that's you, you're in, you're in good company. In my home, I had divorce. In the pulpit that I grew up learning under, there was adultery. So in two of the most key uh, avenues of me receiving faith in God, there was deep and very clear-cut biblical brokenness. And isn't it just like God to redeem broken things? He takes the kid who was bored with church services and he puts it in charge of leading church services. He takes the one who, who had a broken home and a broken church and he says, you're going to be the one who's going who's to strive to keep a family together and grow a church together. Faith comes from others but is not in others. About six months after I had this experience of walking forward at my home church, it was announced from the pulpit, from the front, that our pastor had had a seven-year affair. Went to a really, really large church. Do you know where I was sitting? I was sitting right here in the front row of the high school choir. 150 high school kids were about to get on a bus and go on a ministry tour. And as we're all bawling in the bus, crying that our pastor had let us down in this way, someone said this, I'm sure of it. But the message that lodged deep in my heart is my faith is in Jesus and he won't let me down. My faith is in Jesus. He won't let me down. Not in my charismatic pastor. He was phenomenal. 
Not in our great TV ministry. Not in the loads and loads of people that came. Not in the fact that we had the biggest high school choir around. You're like, who cares about high school choir? Back then it was a thing. The 80s, yo. We went on buses and we were touring Disneyland and stuff. That's not where our faith was in. Faith comes from others, but it's not in others. That being said, what is, the, what is an, a massive overarching uh, philosophy of how we do children's ministry at this church? Here it is, ready? The home is God's greenhouse for growth. The home is God's greenhouse for growth, and particularly spiritual growth. The home is God's greenhouse for spiritual growth. What does that mean? It means that what you do, I don't even know how many hours there are in a week. Some of math nerd knows that. But we get them for an hour. That one hour a week is this important compared to how much you do the rest of the week. So our family ministry says helping families raise disciples. Who's the primary raiser of disciples? Who's the primary discipler? It's mom and dad. What if dad's not in the picture? Then it's mom. What if mom's not in the picture? Then it's dad. What if both aren't in the picture? God raises up others to adopt you. God raises up aunts and uncles and grandparents to step in. We've had all of that here. Praise God. We have faithful Grandma Lois and faithful Mama Eunice's that are there pouring into our students. Here's what's really powerful. Parents or hope to be parents someday, you do not get to choose to, to you do not get to choose if you disciple your children. That choice has already been made for you. You only get to decide what you disciple them into. You are actively training your children in the way they should go right now. Good Bad, ugly. It's just there. You don't get a choice as to whether, I'm not going to disciple my kids. You are. You are training them up in the way they should go. And what speaks louder, words or actions? Give it to me. Actions. But how important are words? We're going to see words are really important this morning. But the way that you live, the way that you talk, Here's what I think about Timothy. Timothy must be eternally grateful for his grandma and his mom. Here's an action item for you. Text, call, or visit your parents today. If you have godly parents that passed on the faith to you, go let them know that their love, their time spent on their knees, that they prayed you into the faith is not lost on you. Thank them for the godly impact that they have on you. Those of you who are parents of prodigals, hold out hope that one day your child's going to turn and say, Mom, Dad, Grandma, Grandpa, Uncle, Sunday school teacher, thank you so much for not stop praying for me. It had to be you continuing to pray for me. Because even though I ran far and wide, I always had this tug toward what was right. I always thought back on your words and the way that you modeled and backed up what you said. I always remember how in that hard time in our family, you showed by your actions that you actually value God more than life itself. Thank you. And if you haven't done it in a while, get in your car and drive if you can. Text or call. Send a handwritten letter. Go old school. But let that person know, thank you so much. You've impacted me. 
And for those of us who are still in this season, Sunday school teacher, invest like eternity depends on it for these little ones. Because it does. Parents, give your life to this. Give your life to this. It feels like a short window of time. I'm in a weird zone of having four out of the house and several more still in the house. Needy as can be. So I have this. I can see on both sides of the wall. It goes quick, my friend. Trust me. Parents, give your life to this. There's no career that will ever compensate for a godly legacy being passed on to your children. If two parents in the home have to work, so be it. We live in Silicon Valley. I get it. But do the math once in a while. Make sure that it's worth it. Whoever's the primary breadwinner, Dad, I hope that you are paying attention to your career. Don't get off with the nonsense of I'm working for them and not being around all the time. Preacher, preach every week like it's your last Sunday preaching because one day... That'll be true. Who has a favorite Puritan in here? Anyone besides Matt? Maybe Tracy does. <laughs> Pastors are weird. We're a weird bunch. I've got a, favorite, I've got a favorite Puritan. His name is Richard Baxter. Richard Baxter is the best. So good. I got a thumbs up from the back. Thanks, Dennis. I see that hand. Here's a Richard Baxter quote. I preach as a dying man to dying men. What is our series kind of theme of 2 Timothy? Urgent endurance. Urgent endurance. That's some of what is striking that. Let's get to dads for a second. Where is dad in this picture? Where's grandpa in this picture? It mentions that grandmother uh, Lois and Mama Eunice were, were there. That's how the faith came through. Here's what people sometimes think about the Bible. You will hear this regularly. The Bible is an out-of-touch, patriarchal, misogynistic book. By the way, if you forget what misogynistic is, it used to be called chauvinistic. But we've changed that word a little bit. Kind of similar meanings. The Bible is not that. Where men are absent and women are the heroes of the faith, the Bible speaks boldly to that. Very countercultural, by the way. Exceedingly countercultural when that was written. Where women are sinning, the Bible doesn't pull punches on that. It calls it out and says these women are sinning. So the Bible is an equal opportunist to both genders, male and female, as to what's right and what's wrong. And it calls it out and names it as such. All right, let's get on to Paul's greatest hits. One of his greatest hits, maybe one of his most, most famous passages. Remember that God paints a worldview for us, and the worldview that God paints for us is radically different than the worldview that comes most natural to us. The worldview that God paints for us is radically different than the one that is actually inborn in us, and that the bulk of people are going. Why does the road that leads to destruction? Narrow is the road leads me. We talked about this last week. If there's a wide road going this way, and I repent, repent means turn around. I turn, change my mind, I'm walking towards the cross. It stands to reason I'd bump into a lot of people. I'd annoy a lot of people. If I start opening my mouth for Jesus and saying, oh, you're all going the wrong way, follow me, we're going this way. Persecution will find me. It just will. 
So that's what we talked about last week about, about persecution. I'll say it this way. As you walk his way, you are in the way of those going the opposite way. Let me say that again. As you walk his way, you are in the way of those walking the opposite way. That's why persecution is there. Remember from last week, Christian, never go looking for trouble. Follow Jesus radically, just normally, and trouble will find you every time. That's how that works. Let me have you look at the title image this morning. Let me just make a couple of comments because they teach. The book is popping off of the page. Why? Because the Bible is larger than life. And it points the way to the larger-than-life life, life, the abundant life. It's all there. It can't even be contained on our screen this morning. The Bible is for profit. Some of your translations say useful, beneficial. That's what it's talking about. But interestingly, just seeing a Bible and for profit might be like triggering for some of you. I never grew up in a church that had big issues with, with people running off with the money. I didn't grow up in the South where I had my preacher on TV saying, touch that corner of the screen, you'll be blessed. I didn't have any of that. None of that. It's all like caricature. I've learned that from other places. Sexual sin, we had that in our home church. But running off with the money, not so much. I was talking to a coworker. I worked at a bank, so you've heard this before. But I had just told this coworker what my major was. And she said, oh, what do you hope to do with that? I said, well, I hope to be a pastor. And here's what she said. She goes, oh, there's good money in that. (laughs) I was so taken aback. And I thought to myself, am I studying the Bible for gain? Here's the truth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Am I studying the Bible and pursuing it and giving myself for profit? Yes. A thousand times yes. But money? No. So my short answer was not if you're doing it right. (laughs) Right? You make a lot of money, you give it away. You share with those who don't have a lot of money. So not if you're doing it right. We're in no danger yet of this. But if I have a private helicopter someday, just take me out. Vote me out of being the pastor. Paul has repeatedly warned against false teachers that are trying to get rich off of God's word. Catch this, by the New Testament times, that wasn't new or novel, and by today's times, that is not new or novel. We don't have to hunt for people doing this. I wonder, just a poll of Americans, if they saw this picture, what would come to their mind? What is the reputation of people in my profession? Not great. Some of it is because I say, well, you're not around the right pastors. Not all pastors are created equal. Just listen to Isaiah 58. It's in your notes, so you don't have to jot it down. You can read this later. I love how the message translates this. This, of all things, was in my Bible reading plan this morning. Isaiah 58. Think about the Bible for profit. Here's what he says. Shout a full-throated shout. Hold nothing back. A trumpet blast shout. Tell my people what's wrong with their lives. 
face my family Jacob with their sins. So God is telling the, the prophet Isaiah, do these things. Shout this to the people. Here it is, ready? They're busy, busy, busy at worship and love studying all about me. To all appearances, they're a nation of right-living people, law-abiding, God-honoring. They ask me, what's the right thing to do? And love having me on their side. But they also complain. Why do we fast and you don't look our way? Why do we humble ourselves and you don't even notice? Well, here's why. The bottom line on your fast days is profit. You drive your employees much too hard. You fast, but at the same time, you bicker and fight. You fast, but you swing a mean fist. The kind of fasting you do won't get your prayers off the ground. There are plenty of people attaching Bible verses for profit and gain that is heaping judgment on their eternal soul. God's not unaware of that. The Bible's not unaware of that. In the last days, evil people will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But not you, Timothy. What's the secret to not being that? That's what 2 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 3.16 is all about. Here's a quick question. Don't answer out loud, just think about it. Is the Bible sufficient for salvation? If someone comes and says, is the Bible sufficient for salvation? Again, just ponder it. What would you, what would you think of that? Think of your response. Because you probably will get that. Is the Bible all you need for salvation? Let me put out to you, because of verse 15, the answer is absolutely not. The, the answer is absolutely not. The Bible points the way, but a book all by itself is powerless. In fact, a book all by itself can actually be really powerful for the wrong things, as we see in Isaiah 58. In verse 15, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Here's what I want you to capture. Is the Bible sufficient for salvation? Is that alone it? No. The Bible in conjunction with the Spirit. It takes the Spirit who wrote the Bible to understand the Bible. Let me say it another way. It takes the Spirit who wrote the Bible to profit from the Bible. Otherwise, we don't profit and understand it in the way that it is. Back to our skit. As Andrew was reading, he was reading about what was going on at an actual event. And Christopher, who was... Uh, or Christian, sorry. Where's, where's Christian? Sorry, buddy. That's your brother. He's like, man, I get it. I have three brothers. Christian was the Jesus character. And the Jesus said this, rivers of living water will brim and spill out of the depths of anyone who believes in me this way, just as the scripture says. 
Now listen to this. He said this in regard to the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were about to receive. Do not miss this of everything I'm saying this morning. Jesus links the Scriptures and the Spirit. The Bible alone will not raise a dead person from life. We don't just inject the Bible into our brain with a chip and now we're saved. It takes the living spirit of God to raise the dead people on the the earth. That being said, here's the overcorrection. Are the spirit and the scriptures pitted against one another? Never. Never. Is it now that we have the Spirit, we have the new and better and more accessible way to God, and so we do away with the Scriptures? Never. The Spirit who indwells you, who gave you life and eyes and appetite for God, will point you back to the Scriptures over and over and over and over again. Jesus right here had every opportunity to go against that, but he said, just as the Scriptures say, keep searching the Scriptures. But that living water, that stream that's going to feed your soul and begin to bless others around you, that's the Spirit of God. And without the Spirit of God, the Bible can be dead and worthless. Isaiah 58, we study all about you. God says, please stop your Bible study. Stop singing. Stop the Bible study. Stop all of it. It's noise to me. It's an offense. All right, let me get to, I told you it was a long intro. Here we go. What the Bible is. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. If you want to get nerdy about it, write down these three words. There's a doctrine called plenary verbal inspiration. It's three words and it's all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God. All of it in its totality. That's what's going on here. Sadly, we live in a time where attacks against the whole of Scripture are commonplace, belief in the whole of Scripture is really rare. Here's what's even more bizarre to pay attention to. In the last 200 years, the loudest attacks have come from those who call themselves Christians. The loudest attacks have come from those institutions, denominations, and famous people who named the name of Christ. And lower the bar of Scripture, lower the bar of Scripture, lower the bar of Scripture. When I went to Valley Church to be interviewed there, I really trusted Glenn Miller. He was the lead pastor. He was inviting me to come interview. I trusted Glenn and knew he probably wouldn't serve at a church that didn't have an exceedingly high view of Scripture. But one of the most important questions I asked of the elders is their view of Scripture. That was really important to me. Our last hire was Matt Hall. Matt Hall's not sitting in church this morning because he's serving in church this morning. Matt was a guy who was just up here. One of the most important questions we had for Matt is his view and application of Scripture. Because that was really important to us. Attacks against the Scripture sounds something like this. All kinds of varieties. But how about this? I believe in the Bible, but not in an actual Adam and Eve that existed and did what was spoken of in Genesis. I believe in the Bible, but not in the myth about Jonah and the big fish swallowing him. I believe in the Bible, and I know that we can learn truth from these stories, 
But we shouldn't take the Bible literally. You have heard, thought, or spoken these kinds of things. Paul says it really simply. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. And all Scripture is profitable. The Bible's a big book. If you've read it all, you know that stirs up some questions in you. Wait a minute. The genealogies? God-breathed and profitable? Those are hard to read through. The mind-numbing details of the Levitical law? That's profitable? That part's inspired? The crazy stories of what are going on? The depressing stories that go on in Judges? The vengeance psalms? Right in the middle of your songbook? All of it? All of it. I want you to remember something. We have sort of an ongoing series for the next couple of years called Reading Over Jesus' Shoulder. Here's the big idea of that series. I walked into Barnes and Nobles the other day, a brick and mortar bookstore. I was going to use library, but no one even knows what libraries are anymore. When you walk into Barnes and Nobles, does it matter where you are standing in the store as to how you are taking in the words off of a page? Say yes. Absolutely. If you're reading a magazine about cycling, or you're in the fiction section, or the self-help section, or the biography section, it matters where you're standing in that store as to how you're taking in the information. It matters where you are reading in the scriptures. When people say, do you take the Bible literal?" I say the parts that are meant to be taken literal, absolutely. What's an example of that? Jesus said, let me describe it this way. A man went to a far-off country, and he tells a story that teaches. In the same way, the kingdom of God is like da-da-da-da. He is using a hypothetical story, just like I do with my children all the time. But if instead I say to my kids, when I was 14 and lived at this place, I talked to my friend such and such, and it turns out none of that was ever true. Was I presenting that as actual historical fact of what I did? Absolutely. The Bible is inerrant in its totality. That's the claim the Bible makes about itself. And if you back way back up and you say, if the Bible is actually God-breathed, it actually can't contain an error. But what about the scientists that have proved it wrong? What about through the centuries, the scientists that proved it wrong for a season until the Hubble Space Telescope came along, right? What about the predominant culture that is so offended by the Bible? The Bible's always offensive to people who don't love the truth. So the scriptures are saying of itself, and this is something you will just have to wrestle with, that all of it is God-breathed and profitable. Think about this. We stand with culture or Jesus on all of the issues contained in the Bible. Here's what's interesting about the examples I just used. Jesus very specifically mentions Adam and Eve when talking about marriage. Jesus very specifically says, the sign you're going to get is the preacher Jonah who spent three days in the belly of the great fish. That's what I'm about to go do. He was alluding to the cross and the grave. 
Jesus refers to genealogies. Jesus refers to the priestly laws. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. That's what it is. What is it for? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Let me take these one at a time and kind of walk through them. The Bible's for teaching. Sound doctrine is what we build our life on. How do we know what, what sound doctrine is? Well, God revealed it to us. He told us what it is. Who am I? Why am I here? What should I be doing? Where am I going when I die? All cultures everywhere ask these kinds of questions. We just sang this song. I've seen people searching for answers. Only you provide. What I just described are questions of identity, questions of purpose, questions of lifestyle, questions of destiny. Break down the big questions that keep you awake at night. It often breaks down into those four categories. I pray that in your Bible time, you will come hungry for the truth. I pray you'll come hungry, I mean humble to learn, and come to gain clarity. Here's secondly, the Bible is profitable for reproof, naming and warning against all the lies. Our lives and our society is filled with lies and errors. The life that I lead and the life that you lead is complex. There's so many voices that it can get really, really confusing. Add to that the fact that our fallen nature that is still in process, we are bringing a sin bias to all that we do. Did you know even our logic is broken? So somebody's like, well, I'm super logical, and so you can't... Well, your logic is coming broken, marred by the fall. And unless it's redeemed by God alone, it's going to see wrong. The Bible describes itself as a mirror. So as you read the Bible, know this, the Bible is actually reading you if you let it. As you read the Bible, the Bible reads you. As you read things in the Bible and your life doesn't line up to that, I thought love was this. Love's that? I'm not aiming at love. Either adjust to what the Bible says love really is, or I keep doing what I want to do, and I do sort of theological gymnastics to make the Bible fit my thing and accumulate teachers that will back me up on that. I'll quote them a bunch, listen to their podcasts. Or eventually, I'll chuck the Bible all together because it just gets kind of annoying. I want to do what I want to do. The Bible keeps countering me. I'm going to check the Bible. The Bible is profitable for correction. What is correction? It's redirecting and steering. If rebuke or reproof sounds like this, that is wrong. Stop doing it. Correction sounds something more like this. Hey, that's not quite right. Try it this way. Hey, let me come over there. You're doing this right, but coach kind of saying, hey, elbow up a little bit. Lucas, am I doing it right? So if you're here, maybe the elbow needs to come up a little bit, right? So coach is going, just kind of correcting. It's different than rebuke. There's a time, parents, for rebuke. Stop! Kid's about ready to run into Alabama Expressway. Stop! You yell at your kid. You yell at your kid? Yeah, you yell at your kid. You rebuke that child. Why? Because you love him to death. Much parenting, much pastoring, though, is correcting. Steering. I don't bark at my kids how to wash the car from my porch. You're doing it wrong. Some of you had dads like that. Maybe moms like that. 
Maybe the pastor is like that. Man, roll up your sleeves, go get in there, get wet, get sudsy, show them how to do it. Make it, make it good. It's the coach coming alongside, it's the parent coming alongside. The Bible's profitable for training in righteousness. Why do we get up here and teach the Bible over and over and over? Because it's the most profitable, beneficial book in the world. I don't have any other tool as a pastor to feed and protect and train up a congregation other than the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Apart from that, I have absolutely nothing. People say this sometimes. I have this sometimes. How do you come up with your material each week? I say, oh, it's the easiest thing in the world. I don't. I don't. It's there. I just say, God, what are you saying? What is that? And I chew on that. I, I package it a little bit, but I don't come up with the material each week. That's why I've been preaching week after week, and I still love it. Here's what the Bible does. The Bible sheds light on current events, training us how to respond and interpret current events, but it also prepares us ahead of time for answers to underlying questions that no one is asking, including you. Let me take an example, persecution. Last week I talked about persecution. The Bible prepares us for real-time persecution going on right now, i.e. the Pioneer Christian Club. But the Bible also prepares us in advance for persecution that's coming. You want to walk godly life in Christ Jesus? You will be persecuted. No one likes to talk about that topic. I'm at seven on the Enneagram. I don't like talking about persecution. Let's go have a party. That's what I want to talk about. The Bible's talking about and raising questions and prepping us, training us for the smackdown that's coming on. It's football practice in August, two times a day, because you know that there's tough times coming in real game time. Look at this quote. The Bible is profitable for doctrine. That's what's right. For reproof. That's what's not right. For correction. How to get right. And for instruction in righteousness. How to stay right. Isn't that good? That's a good little summary of this text. All right, I close with this. What does the Bible do? Two things. Right from this text, ready? Verse 15, the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through Jesus Christ, that's justification. What is justification? It's the instant, one time only, declared righteousness before God. It's being born again. I was dead and now I'm alive. I was blind and now I see. You are justified. You are the beloved. It's who I am. How do I know that? Because God told you. He saw fit to write it down in black and white. It's unmistakable. You are justified in Jesus Christ, child of God. And your spirit right now is welling up saying amen and amen. It feels like God's goodness is running away from me. But it's actually been chasing me my whole life. I'm justified. I can rest in that. I will rest in that. I choose to rest in that. That's what the Bible does. Through the Spirit of God, the Bible justifies. But secondly, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You know what that is? The word sanctification. What is sanctification? Your gradual growing righteousness. Justification happens in an instant. Sanctification happens for a lifetime. What does the Bible do to you, believer? It grows you up in God. It matures you. Far better than leaning on your church one hour a week 
is you just feeding on this little by little, day after day, moment by moment. Who are the people in your life God will use most to grow you? If you're married, it's your spouse. Hands down, the Bible and my wife are the two instruments God has used to shape me the most. Young people, be careful who you marry. I say that kind of jokingly, but I say it really seriously. I tell my kids this. They know this all the time. The person you choose to marry will affect every single day the rest of your life. Every day. What if you get divorced after six months? Every day. What if you stay together in a very difficult marriage for 27 years? Praise God for honoring your vow. God will help you with the toil and the struggle. It will affect every single day, for good or for bad. Band, come on up. This is what the Bible accomplishes. You know, there's tangible fruit that tells you who the loudest, most important, most authoritative voice is in your life. If you're having marriage problems, and the way that you think about it on a day-to-day basis is, my therapist said I should, dot, dot, dot. My counselor told me to stop, dot, dot, dot. If that's the one you are paying money to, carving out time to go see, and whose first thing in the morning is, what does my therapist say? Whose voice are you trusting? You're you're hiking toward happiness. You think your happiness isn't a therapist that you're paying X number of dollars per hour. That's one example, and I'm not against all counselors and therapists. But there is tangible fruit right now in your life that you already know about or is waiting to be discovered to say whose voice is loudest and most authoritative. Whose voice do I trust the most in my life right now? Do you pray with me? God, as we open your word each week, as we do that together, but as we open your word in our homes, in our dorm rooms, on our phones, in a park. God, I pray that you would help us not to love the word in and of itself, but to love the God of the word. Spirit, the one who wrote the word, thank you for nurturing and developing an appetite for truth and an utter distaste for things that don't align with scripture. God, I pray that right now as we celebrate communion, as we sing, God, that we'd actually have scripture rolling around. It informs us how to sing and how to not sing. How to take communion in a way that honors you and how to make it a blasphemous religious show. God, thank you for steering us according to your word and your spirit.